Bibi Fahorier. This is the African Liberation Media. I'm here with Brother Amos and Brother Macaru. The conversation that has been dominating, permeating throughout black barbershops, black institutions, academia, on the street, suites in the hood, is the impending impeachment of Donald Trump, the short-fingered vulgarian. (laughs) But what you are forgetting about is their brothers being killed at a rate of two every day. What we are forgetting about in the midst of this is that mass incarceration persists. There's still the prison industrial complex. Africa is under assault. These brothers can speak more intelligently about it. The black family is in disarray. We are underemployed, unemployed, unemployable, and in too many instances, naked, hungry, and in the streets. Of course, you can fall susceptible to these bogus unemployment statistics. You know, according to my sources, for the bottom two-thirds of Africans who live in Babylon, the conditions are actually worse now than they were when King marched in Selma, Birmingham, any place else in Selma. I understand by way of Brother Macaroo, people there are drinking raw sewage. These are the conditions that we are confronted with. In Flint, Michigan, there's still problems with the water. And in spite of all of this, we are oblivious given the spectacle that's taking place surrounding the impeachment. We live at a time where we might categorize as, or aptly describe as the end of literacy mm. and the triumph of spectacle. This is the African Liberation Media. Brothers, take it wherever you want to take it. Bibi Fahodier, Bado Mapampano, African family, Brother Makaru here. Glad to be on the African Liberation Media on this day. We had several things of, of interest that, that, that took place. Uh, last week, we actually spent, well, I almost said the first time, the whole show discussing the situation in Dallas. Um, so we want to move around and talk about several other things. One of the most positive things that I've seen, quite frankly, in a long time took place in Pittsburgh uh, this week. Um, two sisters uh, had st- stopped at this uh, st- uh, store to buy some gas. And in the process of buying gas, the pump malfunctioned and about $17 worth of gas spilled on the ground. So they went into the store. Three employees in the store, two men from the Indian subcontinent and one white man, refused to give the sisters a refund of $17. So the, the, these, young, these young ladies uh, in their 20s got upset and I think one of them knocked over a candy stand or something or another. And these three men jumped on these two sisters and started beating them in the store, threw them outside the store, continued to beat them, throwing them all over the parking lot, 
Now, there were some people, as usual, outside the store filming, but the only people I saw filming were a couple of, uh, a couple of black women. It, it would have been... It would have been one of the low points in our history if there had been some black men watching that without intervening. I mean, I just, I just can't imagine. Uh, I can imagine my great grandfather with his walking cane trying to hit somebody over the head, even if he wound up taking an L under those conditions. I didn't see any black men. Uh, one of the sisters was thrown into a one of the gas uh, pumps. I mean, it it was. It was brutal. It was brutal what happened. The next day, word got around the Pittsburgh black community. Uh, the people that lived in that neighborhood responded. They shut the business down. It was one of the most beautiful things I have seen. We had elderly sisters in their lawn chairs. Young sisters, families, men, women. These sisters in their lawn chairs put their lawn chairs in front of the gas pumps. They put their, they sat in front of the the uh, the door. They shut the business down. They said nobody's buying gas here. Nobody's going here to get a forty. You know, or what do they call a single cigarette when they go in? A Lucy. A Lucy. <laughs> nobody's buying anything. Come on. Four straight days. They shut the business down. Bravo. The uh, police, uh, upon re reviewing the tape, arrested the, uh, the, the three men. And white privilege broke out. They were charged with simple assault. Simple assault. So, uh, so the communities got upset about that. They said, what? If that's simple assault, what is aggravated assault? I can imagine if one of us had did some white women like that, if the three of us had, had done two white women like that, we would have been charged with felony assault for sure. Maybe, maybe uh, assault with intent to kill. You know what I mean? There's no telling. But, uh, but you know, they, they have been charged and uh, the, um, the, the protest by the by the people in the community shutting the store down because they they made no money. They uh, forced the proprietors, the people that own the property, the property was being leased by somebody I don't know who. The uh, the capitalists decided that they were revoking the lease. They told them you can't operate this business anymore. And they said they, they wanted to lease it to somebody who actually uh, cared about the community. So it was just very positive. And, and, and the sisters led this. Sisters in the black community in, uh, in, in the Steel City led this. It was just outstanding. Yeah, I mean, the, the, way, the way they responded. They said, you know, you, you're not going to treat us like this. And if you treat us like this, you will make zero dollars out of this community and it was just, it was just a beautiful thing i mean to see see these elderly sisters in their lawn chairs sitting in front of the gas tanks no cars coming in here we we ain't moving and they had a lot of men standing around this time unlike the two sisters that uh were beaten nobody was around they had a lot of men standing around 
And there's one there's one sister that there was an activist in in that in the community. Mm-hmm. And she went on a Facebook page and she said, All y'all killers. She said, We two black people were killed in Homewood. I don't know if that's a town or a section of Pittsburgh. The other Homestead. day. No, I think she said Homewood. Homewood. I okay. think that's what she said. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, she said, "We just, we just had a, we just had two people killed." She said, "Where, where are y'all killers? Y'all should be hunting down that white man." Come on. And so she was promptly arrested for posting that. Obviously, you can't post something like that on Facebook without. But, but just the her mentality was that we need a Russell Maroon Schultz here. Mm-hmm. Now the Godfather would say, you know, killing was would be disproportionate to, but a good. A good can of oil. You could dump a can of oil on this sucker. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it, it was beautiful. So I mean, that was that was one of the highlights uh, of my week. Beautiful, beautiful. I am reminded, uh, you know, before we turn it over to Brother Amos, uh, the sister you told me about, Yaa Santawa, mm-hmm. yeah, she intoned. If the men won't fight the British, I'll organize the women. The women will. You know, the and, men of Ashanti won't. Yeah. The women of Ashanti will. If you don't respect my person, you cannot respect my dollar. Yeah, but uh, clearly this is a model that can be implemented you know, throughout the various should be. localities. It yes, should sir. be. Yes, Shut them down. Shut them down. You know, I mean, what is your criteria besides being a mammary gland? You know, for somebody who doesn't care about your community, you know, where are your products, you know? Where are the producers in the community that have their wares on the shelves? You know, what are you getting in ex- in exchange, you know, for your patronage of these people? You know, it's just a, reflects a lack of consciousness. Um, but, you know, hopefully this will uh, ignite uh, a movement, there's always hope. Uh, like Malcolm X said, you know, he, in one of his last interviews with Aubrey Hill, you know, it just takes that small element, it's the wick, like a stick of dynamite that ignites the explosion. Mm-hmm. And we never know what it's going to come from. There's no way we can predict the elements that will lead to a mass movement. I don't even know if you can orchestrate it. The scientific brothers, Dr. Touré, etc. Right. I don't know if they can really orchestrate. No, it's, it's spontaneous. It's spontaneous yeah. combustion. You know, but you know, if something were to occur, as articulated by the sister who was arrested, Maroon shows raises the question: Where are the fighting units to lead the rebellion? You know, he said that the brothers from the Nation of Islam was, and their behavior is tantamount to a grocery store security guard outfit. It's primarily designed for internal security and to protect the leadership. You know, where are the fighting formations? You know, and it, it studying Maroon Shorts, he, he raises some critical questions regarding our lack of awareness. You know, why would we insist on relying on the government as our primary source of protection versus, you know, once again, 
endorsing and supporting and encouraging during that time a group outfit like the Dickens of Bethesda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, why would you rely, you know, on the white supremacist government of the United States as your primary support base, recognizing that they're going to contact the local police officers, which is nothing more than the Klan. You know, I just don't get some of these activities. Uh, I mean, we've got a lot to say about Brother Maroon Schultz uh, in terms of uh, the history that he's espoused and many of the mistakes we've made that could have contributed to our ultimate the Im- the implacable the, uh, the implacable maroon the, no better way to put it unbreakable indomitable implacable incredible brother a lot of times those gas stations that are ran by those Indians are nasty <laughs> um, <laughs> and they pretty much run down you got a certain smell about it brother well, you know, the ones that they have in our communities, they don't feel like they have to keep them up. They don't get them pressure washed. They don't up- update the equipment. Uh, a lot of times you'll see older pumps. So that's probably why mm-hmm. the pump malfunctioned on the system due to the negligence of the owner of the gas station. Slum landlord. And then, you know, him being so cheap, now mm-hmm. wanted to refund $17. $17. He lost his business. Even though his equipment was failing. Right. So you go in a lot of those gas stations and and the uh, the food that they have is old. Uh, sometimes it's close to expiration. And you know they're cheap when they, you know, you look on the uh, car reader and it says it's a, it's a 3 or $4 minimum just to be able to swipe your card. So they can't even afford the credit card transactions for their own business. Slum landlord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I I agree. I think that the resistance that was shown is evidence of when you push people to a certain limit, they'll respond. And it, it was good to see that people responded because they saw how women were treated. I've always been a believer that through the motivation from our women the African man will fight. And you mentioned Yah Santiwa, uh, the great ancestor. Uh, but it, throughout our history, it has always been a spark that has taken place due to either the motivation from our women or the mistreatment of our women. Mm-hmm. Even going back to the ancient, ancient times, we cared about our women and our daughters. And you know, that's one trait that we should never lose as a people uh, or else we'll be doomed uh, for failure. Sisters got this concept. They use toxic masculinity. Uh, the Maroon shows by no means a weak man. He talks about his evolution. At one point in his life, he said he was dumb as doo-doo. And then he met Malcolm X. And from that, of course, he became more balanced as a result of the contribution that many of the sisters have made. You know, not that Yah Asantawa 
You know, Dr. Teray used to talk about how African men typically oppress women, but one area they have not been able to oppress women is on the front line fighting for our liberation. And he talks about uh, brother probably remembers uh, Sister Ella Baker. Uh, and of course, the ultimate during that time was the Black Liberation Army, Asada Shakur, mm-hmm. who he referred to as the soul of the movement. If we didn't know it, well, then the cops knew it. You know, but I'm going to speak more about this brother, man, in terms of his theory. Now, he is convinced that George Jackson has superior theories, and they had the means and the capabilities to break this brother out of prison, just as they broke Asada Shakur out of prison. They said that George could have contributed mightily to our liberation, but it was Huey Newton that deliberately tried to isolate the theories of George Jackson from the larger community or separate uh, the ideological utterances that George was articulating in San Quentin from the masses of people. Mm. You know, I, I, I just... <laughs> That just made me look at Huey in a totally different light. Um, It's part of the problem, you know, when you study the Maroon, he talks about the Hydra leadership. It has its strengths and its weaknesses versus the autocratic leadership, the dragon autocratic style that also has its strengths and weaknesses. You know, if you're fighting physically a common enemy, you know, clearly within the uh, dragon the the uh, more of the monolithic style of style of leadership is better. You always maintain your autonomy, but you come together uh, under a centralized banner. That's really the the, the concept I'm looking for. Uh, and so you know, this, this brother is convinced that you know through the maroon experience be it in Florida, be it in the Dismal Swamp, or be it in uh, South America, that there are lessons to be garnered and gleaned that can aid in a better civilization liberation struggle. Uh, he soundly denounces the approach taken by the Black Panther Party, uh, which resulted in a lot of brothers being killed, you know, having these shootouts with the police. It was just carnage because of the imbalance of power based on superior weaponry. And he just denounces this as being just totally foolish. Mm-hmm. You know, suffice it to say. So, I mean, we, obviously we need a think tank as we uh, move toward uh, a situation where uh, all hell may break loose because of the instability, political instability that appears to be uh, forthcoming and looming. What are we prepared to do as African people? Mm-hmm. You know, given the reality of what we're dealing with, uh, given this gentleman in the White House that at any moment can pour gasoline on a situation, you know, which will uh, result in you know, the traditional the historical en- enemies of the white supremacist dynamic being coming under assault once again. You know, uh, you know, it's, it's historically, a, it's a historical fact that, you know, economically harassed whites attack blacks, period. 
you know, at times we retaliate. This is this Howard Zinn talking. Mm. Okay, so what are we gonna do? Versus, you know, our, our our general modus operandi of waiting for something to happen as opposed to being proactive, oftentimes being overwhelmed by events and circumstances because of our reactionary modality and mentality. You know, that characterize our existence on the you know here in the you know, in Babylon. That's that's all I want to say on that issue. Well, speaking of a think tank, we definitely have a lot to think about. Last week we talked about, we spent the whole show talking about the, the case down in Dallas with the Dallas police officer, Amber Geiger, and her trial uh, for killing uh, Botham Jean in his apartment. Uh, the witness, Joshua Brown, who testified in that case against Amber Geiger, was shot and killed uh, last week. And it's interesting because the police officers have reported that it was a drug deal going bad. There was no evidence of Joshua Brown having a history of doing drugs or selling drugs or anything like that. We know that police officers, the media... Um, white people in general go deep into people's history to dig up dirt on them. So if this brother was a witness in the case, you would think that if he was a drug dealer, they would have used that against him to discredit him as a witness. The same thing if he was using drugs, they would have used that against him to discredit him as a witness. Now all of a sudden, after Attorney Lee Merritt made the statement that this was a victory for black people nationwide, a statement that we said on this show was a very foolish statement to make um, when you consider the fact that black men and black women still getting killed by the police, and this is not the first white police officer to be convicted for murdering a black person. But yet, after that statement was made, this brother was killed before he was set to testify in mm. a civil suit against the police and against the city for a lawsuit that the family has against them. Now, we talked the last week, we talked about how the family apologized and hugged, the, you know, Amber Geiger, the killer, and forgave her for killing their brother and son um, and what have you. But yet, even though they've forgiven her, they haven't forgiven the city. So they're suing the city in a civil lawsuit. Now, what kind of money do you think you're going to get after you have shown that you're over it? I mean, you've forgiven the killer. You've uh, showed remorse. I mean, not remorse, but you've showed uh, forgiveness. Yeah, mercy. Mercy to... <laughs> To this, to this, this person that committed this crime against your own family member. So obviously, you know the way that Joshua Brown was murdered. It looks to us as though this was an inside job by some police officers. He was actually shot, according to the autopsy. He was shot two times, I believe. One time was in the mouth. Was that a statement? 
being made by the police that you opened your mouth, so we're going to shoot you and kill you by shooting you in the mouth. Hmm. That we'll never know for sure because we don't have all of the facts. But what we do know is that police, they do often lie. They do falsify reports in their favor. And this was admitted by Mark Furman on those tapes that they found in the O.J. Simpson trial. Mm-hmm. When he talked about how they set up and framed, I'm not even going to use the word on this show, but N-words, mm-hmm. if you go back and listen to it. So we know that the police have a history of doing this. So we can't take their word as truth when it doesn't add up, it doesn't make sense. All of a sudden, you know, after this brother has testified and before he's set to testify again, he's all of a sudden murdered in a drug deal. And the interesting thing about that, of course, they they, they said there were three suspects who had driven from Alexandria, Louisiana, over to Dallas to uh, make the purchase from him. And they had set up to meet somewhere, and he... They, the police are saying that he shot one of these guys. One of the guys was wound up in the hospital, Parkland Hospital, famous for the Kennedy assassination. Um, he wound up there, and so he was arrested, and I know they arrested a second suspect. I don't know if they got the third suspect or not. But they have a way of fabricating these suspects also, Interestingly, they charged the suspects with capital murder. Mm. I don't see how they're going to make that charge stick unless... I mean, if, if the police have said that he shot one of the suspects, so the suspects could claim self-defense. I mean, this, this, this could get real, 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 real interesting in terms of I was prosecuted, but here's what I really found interesting. Well, what, let me ask you this: What's the penalty for capital murder? Death. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't it make sense that that if they wanted these brothers to die without ever being able to admit that they were wrongfully convicted, charge them with something that they can get them out of this as soon as possible? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that 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 would that would make sense. But here's here's the aspect that I found interesting that, that, that to me was very suspicious. Uh, now, Brother Brown was in an incident in a nightclub last year where he was shot, mm. and they try to they try to tie that to say, okay, this is proof that he was involved in you know these type gang type activities, and I think the person he was with was killed if I remember correctly, and he actually wanted to leave Dallas and moved to California, according to... Lee Merritt gives a whole lot of information because, I mean, he, he, he seems to just respond to stuff that happens because there was a Dallas judge that came on and said he wasn't, he wasn't shot in the, uh, in the mouth. That uh, There were two shots, uh, I think one in the back, but, but one hit the uh, abdomen area and then traveled up mm. and hit some vital organs. So... Um, we, we got that. But here's what I found interesting. The police say that after the shooting, 
after he was killed, they received a tip from someone to go uh, investigate his house, to uh, search for some evidence in his house that is relevant to the murder. And supposedly they went to the house and found $4,000 and some drugs and some other things. The way these snitches work, here you got a guy that's getting ready to testify against a police officer. Any snitch on the street that's got five years, three years, one year, ten years hanging over their head and they knew this guy was supposedly a drug dealer and he's getting ready to testify against a police officer, this brother would have been snitched on a long time ago. Where did this snitch suddenly come from to call the police and tell them, y'all need to go investigate. Y'all need to check out his apartment. The police would have been in this apartment a long time ago. I mean, I think if they were, if they were, if they was, if he was suspected of drug activity. And if he got shot, wouldn't they check out his apartment anyway? Uh, I, I think they would. I mean, I would think so. I mean, I, I would, I, but I don't, you know, I don't know. So, I mean, that's just. It sounds like it's put together. Well, it, it does. It does. It does. And, I mean, it's something that if these guys suddenly escape or disappear, like, you know, Rafael Edmund or somebody like that, just, where is he? He's serving life, right? <laughs> no. We don't know where he is then you have to wonder. You know, I, I, I think about, uh, you know, Claude, or Claude Hebert or Herbert who killed a bunch of cars and John Huggins. How he just disappeared. Just disappeared. And various sources have said that he was, he was in the, the US organization, which was founded by Maulana Karenga, but he was on the payroll of the FBI. And he, he fired the shots to kill both Bunchy and John and disappeared. Totally disappeared. So, you know, they, they have ways, they have ways of making, of making things happen. You know, brother... I think it's an excellent time for us to segue and uh, deal with something I saw here recently. We've always known that Zionists have recruited our scholars, Makari um, Sellers, Morehouse College, recruited by APAC to serve their interests. Now I understand that the CIA has infiltrated the traditional HBCUs in Louisiana Southern University, being the most prominent to not only control the curriculum but to recruit the black youth to engage in nefarious types of activities. So we're talking about uh, our youth receiving degrees based on a CIA constructed curriculum that will be used, these agents, these moles, these spooks will be used in a manner that will contribute to our detriment and demise. 
Where'd you see that? Uh, you know, brother, it might have been Truth Dig. It might have okay. been Bar. Uh, you know, something we might want to pull up and and uh, check that out. Uh, you know, but you know, we shouldn't be surprised. It's just oh, of course not. Another level of neo-colonialism being manifested. Of course not. Of course not. You, you, we have to realize uh, that the the white population is aging and declining. So how 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 do they maintain power and control? They they will have to have Negro collaborators, Hispanic collaborators, and other collaborators in order in, in order to do that. The the average age on the African continent is nineteen. Mm. Youngest population in the world. And so that's why that's why the neo colonialist Barack Obama started this young uh, African leadership organization, which uh, you know he was bringing to Washington D.C. every year while he was the president. But last year they had the meeting um, in South Africa because he received some kind of award from the Mandela Foundation. Uh, I don't know what it must have been some kind of assimilation or support or something or another. It had to be. There's no telling, but but so what what you're saying is 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 not surprising. I mean, we we know we we remember how the deep state attacked the Occupy movement uh, with uh, so with extreme surveillance and also. Uh, Going onto the college campuses that a lot of these, you know, where these students were enrolled in school, and trying to make things difficult for them. So, you know, they are preparing. They are preparing because there are there are a lot of signs out there that, you know, this thing is getting real wobbly. Come on, and it come on. and it could very well collapse. Another thing uh, that I that I found uh, just found. May have been the day of yesterday. Uh, another response, and, and 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 a reaction is better than no action, but a reaction is not the same thing as positive action mm-hmm. or, or being proactive. Mm-hmm. And that's what we got. That's what we got to distinguish. This comes out of uh, the Big Easy Nolans. After losing three classmates to violence since the start of the 2019 year. New Orleans High School George Washington Carver students, the senior class, staged a, a walkout. They staged a protest. And, uh, you know, they said that uh, we can't change it alone, but we hope to spark the movement that changes the world. We hope that other schools see this and that they decide to get that ambition, you know, to make a move. So, you know, every, everything has to start somewhere. If, if, if our young people, if our young people, you know, uh, as Douglas said, Frederick Douglass said, the limits of tyrants are proscribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. And we've talked here on this program periodically about the tyranny of stray bullets. But there, 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 there is a, there is a internal tyranny in our community that's that's perpetrated by a lot of people that uh, are just are just out of control, operating with 
with no spirituality, no sense of values, don't don't value life, will kill somebody in a heartbeat. But if our young people truly get fed up with that, then it will stop. It will stop. And so, uh, you know, I thought that it was a positive move. One march obviously is not a solution to a, a, a massive problem because there's so many layers to the uh, violence that uh, that is so uh, pervasive in our community. But it ha- but it has to start somewhere. I mean, I, I think it has to. It has to be holistic. We there has there has to be a rebellion against the negative imagery, the negative lyrics that that they come across in these songs from these people with these ridiculous names, and it is all part of a, a total process, and it, and and at the same time. Uh, as uh, Gullah Jack was saying regarding the economy, in in many of these cities, in many of these cities, 60% or even higher numbers of young black males are, are unemployed. And they ha- they survive the, by any means necessary. And that often involves crime. And it's it is no different, really and truly, from you know Al Capone and Frank Nitti and Lucky Luciano and La Cosa Nostra during the era of uh, alcohol prohibition. No different. No no different from the gangs of New York. No different. People seem to. A lot of people don't know that at one time in this country, uh, the Irish and the Italians had higher murder rates. Killing each other than than we see in uh, the black community today, and both of those communities, the crime in both of those communities was solved largely by by employment in the industrial sector and in the manufacturing sector, and both of those sectors were were created out of chattel slavery, the profits that were generated from chattel slavery. It's what it's what created both you know both of those sectors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so you know this is this is this this is 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 a very complex issue. But I was just glad to see the students down in New Orleans, at George Washington Carver High School, you know, deciding to to make this move, you know, to to demonstrate this notion that okay, look, something has got to be done and. And hopefully it, it will spread and continue and grow and then become become proactive. Go ahead, brothers. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, to your point, uh, Brother Wilson was excellent in his analysis and contextualizing problems. Um, you know, you're talking about Don Corleone, uh, you know, once again, the U.S. law and its prohibition of a drug called alcohol, which created an industry called smuggling. And people killed each other over scarce resources using the latest in weapons technology. You know, so we, you know, Wilson used to talk about it, 
the ridiculousness of us assuming that drive-by shooting was something new when year after year, you know, people in my age group who grew up in the 60s, we watched this movie called The Untouchables. Mm-hmm. You know, and the gold rush of 1849. You know, it's, I you can create the conditions that contribute to violence along with, you know, the overriding capitalist ethic of getting money by any means necessary, the difference being on the streets is that brothers are using cruder methods. But, you know, just listening to the brothers talk, I'm also reminded of a gentleman by the name of Gunnar Myrdal. You know, he talked about the American dilemma, and what he concluded was, you know, how can we oppress, maintain oppression? and create the idea in the minds of the oppressed that we are their benefactor. Hmm. This was the American dilemma that, uh, you know, he did, did uh, that he articulated, you know. So, you know, it's, uh, Brother Malcolm said, we don't develop the analytical ability to read between the lines in terms of what they're doing, you know. He said that... Uh, you know, we'll be in the gas ovens before we realize that they're hot. Wow. You know, you living in a society, Malcolm used to say, that's just as capable of building gas ovens as Hitler's society is. You know, so, uh, you know, it's sad that uh, we're like a, a frog in the midst of boiling water who becomes relaxed and ultimately dies. You know, the water is boiling, but yet we are exhilarated over the idea that Trump may be in peace. You know, it's, it, it, it's like that's like the highlight of the conversation, you know, that they're going to get this dude, you know. Uh, you might want to be careful what you wish for. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, for for those people who are wishing for that, you may want you may want to be careful what you wish for because you don't know what. You don't know how that uh, his militaristic base of uh, zealous and rabid supporters are going to respond to that. So, uh, anyway. I think I think Gullah Jack. I think our people have amnesia. Come on, amnesia to freedom. <laughs> Keep talking, brother. A lot of our people have. You left your mind in Africa, Malcolm. A lot of our people have never experienced freedom. Or power one one day in their life. That's very true. So without that feeling, yeah, the sense of urgency to get back to it is slowly, slowly being lost. We don't have that. It's almost like a losing team that's never experienced winning the championship. Right. So if you never experienced winning the championship, you don't know even how to prepare to even get to the playoffs. And losing becomes a norm. You expect to lose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you raise that question, brother. How can we inculcate that spirit back into the Africa? You know, uh, it was a reason why it was high rebellions when our ancestors got off of those ships. No question about it. They knew what freedom was. They knew what freedom was, and they wasn't going to settle for being enslaved. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they they knew what freedom was, and even those like uh, you know Nat Turner that didn't come off of a ship, 
did Mark Veazey did, Nat Turner didn't, but Nat Turner had relatives, particularly his grandmother, who I believe was a Coromante, wasn't she? I didn't know that. I think so. I think I think so. And I may be wrong about that. I'll, I'll go back and research it. But his grandmother, you know, did a lot of of liberation teachings. You know, she taught him this. This is this is this is how we once walked the earth as free, proud, productive, prosperous, and powerful people, determining our own destiny. It was constantly inculcated in this brother. So you know, that's a that's a valid point. One other event, um, very interesting, out of Baltimore, mm. and um, talk about the sister. Well, I I, I, I I do, but I want to talk about this first. Um, we, we titled this one, This is Why Cops Should Be Forced to Pay Out of Pocket for Their Violent Violations of Human Rights. Absolutely. Sergeant Ethan Newberg, a 24-year veteran of the Baltimore Police Department, earned $260,775 in the fiscal year that ended June 30th, according to data recently Posted on Open Baltimore, the city's open data website, overtime more than doubled his base salary of one hundred and seven thousand eight hundred and seven dollars. Newberg was charged in June with assault, false imprisonment, and misconduct after he told fellow officers on May thirtieth to arrest a bystander who criticized officers' tactics as they detained another man. Body camera video shows Newberg chasing and grabbing the man and later telling him, just go to jail and take your charge like a man. He's, he's been suspended without pay. Now, the reason why we, why we brought this up is because municipalities, they, they will not reform these police departments. As long as they know that they can rob the taxpayers mm -hmm. to pay for their violate for police brutality and violating the human rights of citizens, and and the municipalities in this uh, in this country have paid out hundreds of millions of dollars because of police like this uh, Ethan Newberg. And here, here this joke is making two hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year as a police officer. But they never, they never have to pay out of pocket. There has got to be some way for where this, this this guy, this guy, they should take every dime that he has, rather than you know taking the money from the taxpayers. But in in that same context, our sister uh, from Tuskegee University, Marilyn Mosby who is the uh, state's attorney uh, for, for the city of Baltimore, recently threw out almost 800 convictions. It was 790 and some change convictions from, I think, about 24 police officers who she found to be corrupt. Now, you, you're talking about a prosecutor that's on the case. I hope this ser this sister gets some serious protection. Yes, you took the words right. I'm I'm, ho I'm, ho I'm hoping that this this beautiful this beautiful young sister gets some serious protection because she is sitting right there in the belly of the beast and she is taking these people down. 
She's taking these people down. How, how many cases did she throw out? What was that figure again? It was seven ninetieths of change. I mean, I I got it somewhere. Okay. Somewhere. Okay. It's, it's on our Facebook page. It's something we we have it. Just go on our Facebook page and okay. scroll down and find right. and find Marilyn Marilyn Mosby, and you know she's a serious, a rare, rare, rare. Earlier, she told she told the Baltimore police, "Don't bring her any marijuana convictions because she wasn't going to prosecute them." And the, the law enforcement establishment in Baltimore went berserk. They said, "You can't do that. This is the law." She told me, "I'm not. I'm, don't bring me no. Don't come in here with nobody. That's y'all stopped me. You got a little uh, half of a roach, mm-hmm. you know." Mm-hmm. Contrasted with somebody like Kamala Harris. Oh my, well, Jesus Christos. Anyway, uh, that 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 was a, that was that was another thing. You got anything else, brother? Almost. Um, I know we want to talk about brother Ahmed uh, before we before we close out. We got about nine minutes. Well, let's uh, turn our attention to uh, the intertwine of sports, sociology, and race. Homage finally being paid to John Carlos and Tommy Smith, 1968 Olympics, the indelible signal, uh, the Black Power salute, uh, that movement orchestrated by Dr. Harry Edwards. Mm-hmm. San, uh, San Jose State, right? Yes, sir. You know, he's St. Louis, Illinois, you know, in spite of the fact that they were denied their medals. The United States Olympic Committee decided to include their medals in the overall U.S. Olympic count. count. You know, uh, this was the uh, year in Mexico City where we had such, uh, you know, great athletes such as the great Bob Beeman who set records. This was the time period when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar refused to participate in the Olympics. You know, in my view, this is one of the reasons why he's never really gotten a coaching offer. You know, so... Uh, and George Foreman running around the ring with an American flag. With the, George Foreman running around the ring with an American flag. Of course, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I am happy for George to be able to have been able to have written reinvented himself after going into a depression 10 years uh, post the rumble in the jungle. Mm-hmm. You know, Foreman gets off the plane with a German shepherd. The German shepherd being a tool of oppression because the Belgians used the German shepherd. The dog got sick. To enforce the, the form of apartheid they had established in the Congo. Form an absolutely clueless as to the history. That's why they were telling him, Ali, boom, Ali, kill him. Ali, kill him. Ali, kill him, you know. Um, and Ali says, Joy, that's all you got left, Joy. said, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you should have you never come to Africa. <laughs> okay, yeah. We just having a little fun here. Oh, yeah. And Simone Biles is just uh, off the chart. I mean, this, this, this sister is doing things. <laughs> In the uh, in the world gymnastics uh, championships, that that is just on a on a whole. It, it, it's almost like it's in a a whole different planet. Right. She's she is so far ahead of the, 
of the competition. I mean, this sister is just absolutely, uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, let me let me go to this. Just announced today, uh, one of the brothers that, that that we talk about quite a bit on on this show from from the African continent. Uh, I know uh, I know brother Amos and and a lot of other brothers that that have that travel frequently to Africa are, are, are just so uh, upbeat and 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 hopeful that, that this brother can continue. We're talking about the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abe Ahmed. Okay. He was given the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize. And this is what we put on our Facebook page. We hope our brother Prime Minister Abe Ahmed continues to stand strong against the enemies of African peace. We've got to realize this. There are, there are people who are continuously sowing the seeds of discord yes, on the African continent. Do you know that on the African continent, that Africa, that, uh, that in Africa, you can buy AK-47 in Africa cheaper than you can buy one anywhere else in the world. Wow. Why is that? Okay, brother. Um, so we, we hope he's able to stand strong. We know that Barack Obama made an absolute mockery of the Peace Prize, and we know that there are forces seeking to undermine Abe Ahmed's efforts. We know that there, there are people who are trying to uh, foment... Or you know, instigate uh, ethnic conflicts in the country to bring this brother down. Uh, this is what the, uh, this article I uh, got it from a uh, Ethiopian Ethiopian newspaper. In awarding the prestigious prize, the Nobel Committee noted Prime Minister Abe Ahmed's contribution to peace and internal cooperation, particularly for his decisive initiative uh, to making peace with neighboring uh, Eritrea and also for liberalizing the political and economic conditions in Ethiopia. The Nobel Committee also recognized that Ethiopia is home to many ethnic groups where ethnic strife has been flaring from time to time and up to three million people were dis uh, are currently displaced. The committee believes that there are many issues that still need to be resolved. But the committee underscored that some of the people, underscored that some people may think it is too premature to award the Peace Prize this early in his in his tenure, however, the committee believes that uh, Prime Minister Ahmed needs support and encouragement at this very moment as he continues with his reforms. The committee believes Ethiopia uh, is the second most populous country in Africa, and therefore, a peaceful and successful Ethiopia will have many positive side effects and a huge contribution uh, to itself and to the region. And we know that the brother has been involved trying to negotiate uh, peace in, in, in Sudan, South Sudan, Somalia. I mean, this is, uh, this is, I mean, when you look at what, what masquerades as leadership on the African continent, and, yes, I, and almost knows this better than anybody, if we look at the, the, some of these clowns that masquerade as leaders, they have a, they have a brother like this. And, you know, they, they say they make the remark about maybe the premature remark was because perhaps now uh, with, with uh, hindsight being 2020, they realize how premature they were in giving Obama the prize in 2009. It was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous to give it to him. And then he just made a mockery of it Bro. by engaging in war after war after war after war. So uh, this is a very positive thing because we do need peace.
Yes. Sir. I mean, Africa has the potential for enormous economic development, but it can't take place when you have so much instability. I think I was reading, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it on one of the shows, that they're like, 300,000 people have been displaced in Burkina Faso because of, you know, the jihadist, uh, you know, uh, bombings of, of marketplaces and things. And so, so you, you, you have this, I mean, you, you have these various uh, conflicts on the continent between the pastoralists and agriculturalists. So... But if, 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 if we could just, if we could get beyond, you know, this uh, ethnic, ethnic identification and beyond yeah. these, uh, these, these Berlin Conference borders that give a false sense of national identity and identify as Africans. We have been denatured. What could we, what could we, what could we accomplish? I mean, what could, what could we accomplish, brother? I mean, what what do you think about this? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that whenever you have uh, positive leaders such as Abi Ahmed, who is doing things specifically for Africa, not in the interest of the West or Western countries, and to be able to receive an award like this, I think that uh, it definitely speaks volumes uh, to his character and to what he hopes to accomplish mm-hmm. on the continent. So I, I I agree. I think it's a positive. I think it's a positive move, but I think it's something that uh that we definitely have to have to you know monitor mm-hmm. where he goes from this. And we have to monitor the, the moves of his enemies. Mm. Yeah, most definitely. This has been the African Liberation Media here with Brother Amos. Brother Macaroo, until next time, a BB for Hodier. BB for Hodier.